We are getting towards the end of the book of James, and it's important to understand that it's not like James just sort of runs out of things to say and the letter just kind of um, trickles out at the end. This ending is not just tacked on. It really is the culmination of what the whole letter is about. What have we seen as we've worked our way through James? James is speaking to suffering Christians. He is speaking to suffering Christians calling them to live faithfully and wisely and with integrity despite the challenges they face. He wants them to live with wisdom and faithfulness and consistency, being who they are in the midst of all of this suffering, in the midst of all of this hardship and difficulty, these trials. Now, this letter has a structure, and I don't always call attention to this, but I have a few times along the way. Uh, it's got a very interesting structure where each section of the letter, it's divided into several discrete sections, each section leads to the one that follows. It's kind of like they're hooked together like links in a chain. And then each structure on its own has uh, a specific kind of structure. And generally speaking, uh, that structure is what you call a chiasm. Now, I don't usually do this, but I've done this for you today. This, I'm providing this at no extra charge today, so you get this for free, thrown in. Uh, but if you turn to the back of your bulletin, uh, you will see, one of those back pages of your bulletin, you will see how this passage is outlined, the structure that it falls into, verses 7 to 18 of James chapter 5. You see that? That is what we call a chiasm from the Greek letter chi. It looks like an X for us. And it's because when you lay it out on paper, it kind of takes that half uh, X shape. And, and the point of the chiasm is this. The first section and the last section match. They sort of serve as bookends. And then the second section and the second to last section matches. And you keep having these matching sections until you get to the very middle. And of course, that middle section is really, uh, that, that's the core. That's really the, the highlight. That's what the author is highlighting by the structure itself. We're not really accustomed to, to, to recognizing chiasms. I certainly realize that. But you need to understand, pretty much the whole Bible is written in, uh, in, in chiastic structures. Uh, and it can be very, very helpful to recognize these structures because the matching sections, they'll be just a little bit different. And they will interpret one another. And that's what we have here. So if you look at the A sections there, both speak of the rain and the fruit of the earth. What's different is one speaks of patience, the other speaks of prayer. But when we see those other links, we can start to see, hey, you know what? There's a connection between patience and prayer. If I want to be patient, I need to pray. And, and then the fruit of the earth and the rain and everything else, all those things fit together with that. The B sections, do not grumble against each other. Well, okay, what if I'm not going to grumble uh, against others? What should I do? Well, you find the matching B section, the B prime section. We are to confess sin to one another. So don't grumble against one another. Instead, confess your sin to one another. That's a much better use of your tongue. You look at the C sections. That links the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord with elders who anoint in the name of the Lord. The D sections, James links Job with anyone in the congregation who's, who's experiencing similar ups and downs to those Job went through. If you have that kind of structure, you can start to see, well, you know what, maybe whether I'm happy or sad, I can learn something from the life of Job. And then you've got the middle section in verse 12. This is obviously... Uh, what James wants to highlight, and not only do you have the chiastic structure showing you this is the center, this is really the most important thing, the most important command that sort of ties it all together, James actually indicates that with his words when he says, above all. 
above all. That's the center of the chiasm. Well, what is this above all command? What is the most important or most central command in this group of commands that ties them all together? Let's look at it. He says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Uh, as we've seen, as, as James so often does in his letter, this is an echo of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, almost an exact quotation uh, from the words of Jesus uh, from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. It is also an echo of Leviticus 19, verse 12, the words of the Torah, uh, where God says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. We've looked at the first several verses in this chiasm. Today we're going to look at this verse in the second half. Why is this the above all command? That may seem kind of odd for James to make this the central command, focusing on oaths and swearing. Why does he highlight that? It doesn't really seem to fit all that well with the other commands. But actually, I think if we dig a little deeper, we can see it fits really, really well. The point James is making is this, and he's building on something he's already said. James has a lot to say about speech ethics. Here he's returning to that. Your speech reveals your heart. Your speech is a window onto your heart. What comes out in your words is a reflection of what is deep down inside of you. And so this is really what James is getting at when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Are you a double-minded person or a single-minded person? See, James has been attacking that double-mindedness all throughout the ladder. And here he's doing that again. Are you double-minded or single-minded? Do you want to keep a foot in each camp? Can you, can you, are, are you prevaricating? Are you vacillating between serving Yahweh and serving Baal? Or are you all in? Have you gone all in on the Lord Jesus Christ? And, 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 and everything that you have, everything that you are, is devoted to serving him. In other words, this is really about this question. Are you a hypocrite or a true believer? Do you have integrity? Are you who you say you are? People who are double-minded are always dishonest. There is a fundamental dishonesty about who they are. And so they're constantly having to resort to oaths and to swearing to get people to trust them. Okay, we're not talking about oaths in a court of law. That's different. And I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. Here we're talking about using oaths or swearing in everyday life to get people to believe you. For the hypocrite... That's really hard to do because people start to sense after a while that maybe you're not who you say you are. And so for the hypocrite, his speech vacillates because his heart vacillates. He can't make up his mind about who he really is. There's no stability in his life. And so he's double-minded. And this double-mindedness especially gets exposed in times of pressuring and suffering. You can play the hypocrite's game when things are going well. But all of a sudden, when there's a price to be paid for being a Christian, it gets a whole lot harder for the hypocrite to pull it off. Remember, James is writing this letter to the diaspora. These are Jewish Christians who have left their homes in Jerusalem because of persecution. They're under great pressure because of their faith. Their own countrymen, their own kinsmen are coming after them because they believe Jesus is the Messiah. There are many who, when faced with persecution will lie about what they know to be true. They will lie about what they believe in order to avoid suffering. 
They will vacillate and equivocate in order to save their own skin. How many people this month, how many people are paying lip service to Pride Month in order to avoid suffering or ostracism, even though they know better, they know God cannot approve of LGBTQ lifestyles, but they feign approval of them themselves because they want to stay out of trouble. What would James say to that? James would say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is James' point in this context. If Christ-hating powers, if those who hate God confront you and ask you, are you, are a, Christ, are you a Christian? And they have the intent to harm you, to hurt you in some way, if you are. Those who hate God ask, are you a Christian? James would say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Tell the truth about who you are and what you believe. Think about Peter, the well-known example of Peter when Jesus was taken away to be crucified. What did Peter do? Peter was double-minded. That's really what James is addressing here, that kind of double-mindedness. Peter was double-minded in the face of potential suffering. Even though he knew better, even though he knew the truth about Jesus, he denied it. He denied that he even knew Jesus, and he sealed it with an oath. He swore he did not know this man, Jesus, even though obviously he did. But under pressure, under persecution, the threat of persecution, the threat of harm, he caved in. He was double-minded. James is saying to these suffering Christians, and he would say to us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have the courage to speak the truth you know. Have the courage to stand up for those things you know to be true. Do you believe Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be who you are. Be consistent with who you are. Don't change what you say you believe so you will fit in or avoid suffering. Don't dilute God's word in order to avoid persecution. That's fundamentally dishonest. That is falsely swearing. Be who you say you are. If saying, yes, I am a Christian, and yes, I believe everything the Bible teaches, including what the Bible teaches about life in the womb or some other controversial issue today. Yes, I believe what the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality and homosexuality. Everything the Bible says, everything the Bible teaches, I believe it. If that means you're going to have to pay some price, then pay that price. Be who you are, be true to who you are, be true to your identity in Christ, and let the chips fall where they may. Better to die as a loyal martyr than live as a double-minded man. That's really what James is telling us. Better to die as a real Christian than save your skin as a hypocrite. James is saying, above all, keep your word to God. Be honest to God. Above all else, be honest to God. Be true to who you are. God is faithful. God keeps his word to you. You must be faithful in turn. You must keep your word to him no matter the cause. So that's the center of the chiasm. That's the most important thing James has to tell us in this section. Have the courage and the integrity and the honesty and the consistency in your speech and in your action that James is calling us to here. Live with integrity. Be single-minded and wholehearted 
in your devotion to Christ. That's really, again, what this whole letter is about. Being single-minded in our devotion to God so our words and actions match. So that we are reflecting God's own wisdom and truth and righteousness in how we live our lives. Be who you are. Be who you say you are. Live with integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, that's the center of the chiasm. Now we can move into that second half of the chiasm. We won't cover all of it today, but we'll cover the next couple verses. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now, I I pointed this out already. In the chiasm, this corresponds back to Job in verse 11. Job had his times of suffering and his times of joy, and he was faithful in both. Job was faithful in good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health. For richer or for poorer, he was faithful to his God. And James is saying, you be the same way. Whether times are good or times are bad. You know, when times are bad, you're tempted to turn against God and think, God, how can you do this to me? When times are good, you're tempted to think, I don't need God. I'm happy the way I am. I don't need God in my life. I don't really need to pay any attention to God. What James does here is give us practical instructions for how to respond to life's ups and downs when times are good or bad. Praying prayers and singing psalms are fitting. This is what God wants us to do. So in times of suffering, don't turn away from God. Turn to God. Turn to God in prayer. Express your pain to God in prayer. Take that pain and that frustration and that anger to God and leave it with Him. Take those emotions to God, your grief and your heartache, your frustration and your fear. Take those to God in prayer, James is saying. And likewise, when you're happy, when things are going well, recognize God has given you these blessings. God has given you these gifts you are enjoying. And so you know what else God has given to you, James is saying? God has given to you songs. God has given to you songs to sing so you can thank him for his blessings. Songs you can use to express your joy, to express your gratitude before God. Now you need to see here, this is so important, the healthy Christian life is not a stoic life. It's not an emotionally repressed life. Certainly there are times when you need to be emotionally in control. Uh, So maybe a trace of stoicism there, something about being self-disciplined or self-controlled in certain circumstances and situations. That's called for. But the Christian life is not a stoic life. It's not a stoic life. God has given us our emotions, and our emotions are to be a reflection of God's own emotional life. God has given us our emotions. And God has also given us, you could say, a safety valve, a way of expressing those emotions in a way that is pleasing to him. See, throughout the whole range of life's events, all the ups and downs of life, you're going to experience all different kinds of emotions because you're going to experience all different kinds of ups and downs. But every single one of those occasions is an occasion for praying and psalming to the Lord. Praying and singing psalms to the Lord. I think it's especially interesting that James here mentions the psalms. It's interesting he mentions the psalms for those who are happy because so many of the psalms are psalms of lament, psalms of grief, psalms of of heartache. But of course, there are certainly joyful psalms as well, uh, but it's just interesting. There truly is a psalm for every occasion. There is a psalm for every emotional state. You want to know what to do with your emotions before God? 
Sometimes you don't even know how to put your emotions into words. Well, guess what? God has done it for you in the Psalter. Whatever you're going through, there's a psalm for that. There's a psalm that matches your situation, a psalm that is appropriate, that is fitting. There is a psalm for every occasion, for every emotional state. John Calvin called the the Psalter an anatomy of the soul. You go through the 150 psalms, and your whole soul is laid bare for you. You can dissect your whole soul using the Psalter. The Psalter is full of godly expressions of emotion. The whole variety of different emotions we will experience through the course of life. The good thing about using the Psalms is they will shape our emotions and express our emotions in ways we know God approves. Because God inspired this very language. Now, our prayers and and, and songs in church don't have to be limited just to those found in the Bible. Certainly not. But God has given us these prayers and these songs for a reason. And if you really want to learn how to pray, if you really want to learn how to praise, if you really want to learn how to rejoice, if you really want to learn how to grieve, you must let the prayers and the psalms of the Scripture teach you. And this is why I would say the Psalms should always be central to the life of the church. God has given us a whole book of prayers to be sung before him. He's given us a whole book of prayers to be sung before him, expressing again the whole range of human emotion. We sing a psalm, at least one psalm, in the worship service every Sunday. Now, typically, those are what we call metrical psalms. So the psalms are massaged. They're played around with to fit uh, a melody line. That's good to do it that way. What's even better is to sing the psalms as they were written. Occasionally, we do this with a through-composed psalm. But the most common way to do this is chanting the psalms. And if you come on a Wednesday night... You will get to chant a psalm. Those who go on Wednesday night are learning to chant their way through the Psalter. And the great advantage of chanting is you are singing the very words God wrote. They're not modified to fit a tune. We're singing exactly what God wrote in faithful translation. And that's a beautiful thing. And that ought to be central to the life of the church. It is shocking. It ought to be scandalous. That today, there are Christians who will go their entire life, who will live 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, going to church every Sunday, and never sing a single psalm. 150 years ago, that would have been unthinkable because all Christians in all denominations knew the Psalter had to be central to the church's worship and praise and prayer. And today, there are countless churches you can go into, and they never sing a psalm. Oh, maybe there's a line from a psalm here or there, or there's a hymn that's loosely based on a psalm. But they never sing a single psalm. If you want to know why things are so messed up in the church today, that's got to be one reason why. God has given us a hymn book, and we neglect it. We ignore it. We ought to be ashamed of that. God has given us the psalms. We're commanded to sing them in his word. Let's do it. Then James goes on to give instructions for sick Christians. 
This fits into James' larger instructions here about how to live together as a suffering community. If you really want to, again, think about what this whole section is about, it's how to live together in fellowship as a suffering community. How we can care for one another in hard times, in the midst of of hardship and trial. And so here specifically, he's dealing with the question, what should happen when a member of the body falls ill? When there's a serious illness in the congregation, James asks, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now there's a lot here to consider. Uh, There's there's a lot here going on. Who are the sick? Uh, I don't think this is saying you ought to call for the elders uh, every time you sneeze, okay? I don't, I don't, I mean, every time you get a little tickle in your throat or something like that. Uh, but anytime there's serious illness, this is an option that ought to be seriously considered. Anytime there's a real crisis of health, that's how I would look at this. This is uh, for a health crisis. And what is supposed to happen? What's going on here? It's interesting how many different explanations there are, how uh, James 5, these verses in James 5 have been used to support all different kinds of views and practices throughout the history of the church. So for example, there's the Roman Catholic take on this passage. Roman Catholics use this passage as the basis for the sacrament of extreme unction where a priest is to go to the bedside of the dying and anoint them with oil and pronounce last rites. That's the idea. Now, the problem with that is that the sick person in James 5 is actually not ready to die. He's not on his deathbed, or at least he's hoping he's not on his deathbed. He is actually seeking healing, not safe passageway into death. He's seeking restoration of life. So the anointing with oil and the prayer of faith, all of that, this is not consecration for death. This is seeking restoration unto life. So the Roman view of this passage is definitely wrong. Whether or not there is warrant for anointing those who are about to die, that's a separate question. That's not what James 5 is about. But I'll tell you this, not only does Rome get this passage wrong, uh, a lot of the reformers got this passage wrong too. John Calvin, I think, got this passage wrong. Uh, Calvin thought that James was describing a special temporary gift of healing that ceased with the passing of the apostles. There were miraculous gifts operative in the church, things like tongues and healing and and, and other miraculous gifts that were operative during that apostolic era from about 30 to 70 AD as God was giving new revelation. He was authenticating it with these special sign gifts. And so you had this gift of healing that was operative in the church for a while. And Calvin thinks that's what this passage is talking about. So the elders could go in and actually heal the sick and and perform a miracle. Well, there's a lot of problems with that reading, I think. There's nothing here, even though I think there is something to tying those special gifts, those extraordinary gifts to the apostolic era. uh, There's something that just doesn't sit right. For one thing, uh, the call here is not to the apostles. The call is to elders. When we see the apostles performing healing miracles, like say in Acts chapter 3, Peter just speaks to the sick man and he's made well. It's spoken. There's no prayers. They don't have to anoint with oil and and, and all that. Uh, They just speak and it's done. It's clearly miraculous. This may be a miracle here, but it's the elders, not apostles. And it's praying to God, not just simply saying, you will be healed. Uh, The kind of thing you see the apostles doing. So this seems to be something different uh, than that miraculous gift of healing. I'm not saying there's not miraculous healings. There are, and I'll talk about that in a bit. 
But what I am saying is this is not a gift of healing. The healing comes not from the elders, but through the prayers. They're not gifted as healers. They simply pray and God makes it happen. So I don't think there's anything about this that's tied specifically to the apostolic era. Uh, Charismatics and Pentecostals will use this passage to say that we should have healing services. And this is often tied into a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But the problem with that is that it seriously misunderstands the connection between sickness and sin. Because with that comes this view that, well, if you're sick, it's because you're in sin. And if you just repent enough or believe enough, you will get better. It's always God's will to heal you. And if you're not, then there's something wrong with you and your faith and and your walk. What do we say about that? Well, certainly it's true in general that sickness entered the world because of sin. And that way we can say all sickness is due to sin. But it is not true that every illness is due to some particular sin. And in fact, to teach that, to teach that every illness someone gets is due to some particular sin, that it's punishment for some particular sin, is cruel and harmful. It's doing to a Christian today what Job's friends did to him, blaming the suffering for their suffering, blaming those who are suffering for their suffering, blaming the victim, the, the one who's suffering, for their own hardship when... That may not be the case. We don't know that in most cases. Most of the time when you get sick, it's simply because you live in a fallen world, not because you're being punished for some specific sin. Now, we do have cases, to be fair, we do have cases in Scripture where sickness is due to sin, such as 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says some of you are getting sick and even dying because of the way you are abusing the Lord's table. Uh, We could say that uh, there are certain sinful forms of behavior, like promiscuity or drug use, that can lead to illness, sickness. And you can see a pretty direct correlation between the sinful behavior and the sickness that comes because of it. You can see a correlation there. But we also have cases, and again, this seems to be much more common, where a person's particular affliction is not due to any particular sin they have committed. Their sickness is simply a manifestation of the curse in a general kind of way. Sin and sin comes into the world and sickness and death come with it. And so yes, if you get sick, it's ultimately due, because, due to living in a fallen world because we live in a fallen world. But it may not be due to any particular sin in, on your part. Again, obviously, Job falls into this category. He was not being punished for any particular sin when he suffered. Rather, he was being tested and mature. The man Jesus encounters, who was born blind in John chapter 9, also falls into this category. And Jesus has to correct his disciples, who wrongly think if the man was born blind, it must be because he sinned or his parents sinned. It's got to be some specific sin. The Apostle Paul falls into this category. He had what he calls a thorn in the flesh, some physical ailment, it seems. And it's not because of any particular sin Paul is living in. Three times Paul asks God to take this thorn in the flesh away, and God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. God has his own reasons for not taking that thorn in the flesh away from Paul. It is simply a truth that must be reckoned with. Some of the most righteous and mature believers to have ever lived have suffered the most physical ailments. And we must always keep that in mind. Now, that being said, I will add this, too, without falling into that charismatic error. I think it's worth pointing this out. Anytime we're sick, it's a good time to take stock of yourself spiritually. Anytime you get sick, it's a good time to confess sin, 
to repent of that sin, to receive forgiveness for that sin. James even calls attention to that. He goes on to, to link this with confession of sin and forgiveness. Confession is good for the soul. We have that saying. But confession can be good for the body as well. So do what David did in Psalm 139 when he prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my, my thoughts. And see if there is any offensive way in me. Pray that way. You know, it's interesting, in Psalm 32, David talks about praying for forgiveness, and then he talks about how physically he's rejuvenated because of it. So that is a, a possibility. First Peter 4, Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. God can use illness and suffering in our lives to lead us to repentance. So as John Piper would say, don't waste your sickness. Don't waste your illness. Make the most of it. See it as an opportunity to grow as a Christian. Maybe your illness slows you down. It's a time to take stock of where you are spiritually. Maybe it's an opportunity to repent of your sin. Sometimes the Lord afflicts our bodies for the benefit of our souls. There's another issue here. Uh, it's already obvious, but again, I want to stress this. When James speaks here of saving the sick, or raising up the sick. Those are the two ways he describes what's going to happen, saving and raising up. This should not be taken as a guarantee, as if everyone who is prayed over and anointed with oil is going to get better. Actually, those words, save and raise up, have broad meanings. The word for save in, in Greek, it, it can be translated as to save or to heal. It's the same word. And depending on context, it can be to heal like physical healing, or it can be save as in salvation from sin. It's the same word. So you really don't know apart from context. And that language of being raised up, that can be used for a lame man who's given his ability to walk, or it can be used in the case of a resurrection, raised up from death. It's got that range of meaning. And I think the, the range of those terms is here present in this passage. What does it mean to be saved or healed here? Well, it's, it's open-ended. Obviously, when the sick person here calls for the elders to anoint him with oil and pray over him, he is seeking physical healing that will extend his life and his well-being in this world. That's what the sick person desires, and that's fundamentally, primarily, what the elders pray for. But this language of being saved and raised up can also refer to our final salvation, to the final resurrection, to the completion of our redemption. And so in that sense, we can say, yes, everyone who is anointed with oil and prayed over in this way is saved. And it's raised up because at the last day, that's what's going to happen. That's the ultimate promise of healing. In the end, spiritual salvation and physical healing become one. That's what the resurrection of the body is all about. Our full spiritual salvation and our full physical healing become one and the same at the last day. But in the meantime, even those who are healed of an illness they're enduring are still going to, at some point, get sick and die again. Think about those that Jesus healed or even raised from the dead in the Gospels. They still got sick and died at some point after that. The ultimate saving, healing, and raising that God has promised to us comes at the last day. So understand, God has not promised to heal us from every illness in this life. Sometimes you can have prayer and anointing with oil and all of that, and God simply doesn't heal. I think about 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul talks about Trophimus, or, or Trophimus, 
And he says of Trophimus, he says that uh, Trophimus was sick, and so he says, I left him in Miletus as I continued my travels. If the Apostle Paul, if his prayer, and presumably his anointing with oil, I think we can just assume he did everything he could for, for Trophimus. If Paul could not heal this man, then we know healing isn't always going to happen. And it might not be because of sin on the part of the sick person. Or lack of faith on the part of those who pray. It is simply God's inscrutable will. Sometimes we pray and sometimes God simply says no. There may be reasons why God does not heal a particular Christian at a particular time. We may not be privy to those reasons. So there's no guarantee here. Then there's the anointing with oil. Some have argued that this must be medicinal. Uh, and it is true, various oils have always been used in medical ways. Think about Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan puts oil on the wounds of the injured man. Oil would be used in medicinal ways uh, in the ancient world and actually still is today. But here it is, the elders, not doctors, who bring the oil. And the oil is applied in the name of the Lord. And so it seems to me what is being sought after here is something supernatural or even miraculous, some kind of supernatural or miraculous healing of some physical ailment. And that may be in cooperation with what doctors are doing, or it may go beyond what the doctors can do. Certainly this anointing with oil and prayer does not replace what doctors can do. But neither is it just some kind of mere supplement uh, to, to what doctors are doing. I think what's happening here actually is somewhat similar uh, to the use of oil in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to preach. We read this passage this morning and they cast out demons and it says they anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And I think that's the kind of thing that's in view here. The oil here, as in so many other places in scripture, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is symbolized by water, wind, fire, and oil is another symbol of the Holy Spirit we're given in Scripture. The Holy Spirit can bring comfort and healing. He is the Lord and giver of life. So this oil is not a, a magical potion. It's not some kind of elixir. It is symbolic. And how does this symbolism work? Well, think about some examples of this. In Leviticus chapter 2, the tribute offering is described. Leviticus opens by describing all of these different types of offerings that can be made at the tabernacle. Leviticus chapter 2 is the tribute offering and it has oil poured over it. So part of the anointing with oil here is consecrating the sick person. So now the sick person will be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord in a certain way. The body of the sick person becomes a sacrifice, a tribute offering before the Lord. He has oil poured over him just like the tribute offering. Further, the oil reminds us of priests, kings, and prophets who are all anointed. Of course, Christ is our ultimate priest, king, and prophet, anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure, without limit. Anointing the sick Christian with oil is a way of memorializing and symbolizing the truth of his union with Christ, that he shares in Christ's anointing even in his sickness. This anointing with oil memorializes the truth that the sick person is united to Christ and is suffering in Christ. And so his suffering is not in vain. It is consecrated suffering. It is holy suffering, sanctified suffering. Further, the spirit and oil in Scripture are both associated with, with glory, anointing 
the sick person with oil, in a way, glorifies his suffering. It transforms, it transfigures that suffering into something glorious. Thus, even if the sick person is not healed, maybe especially if he is not healed, the anointing gives the sick person a new way of interpreting his affliction. He now can interpret his affliction in a different way. So whether he lives or dies, whether the sickness lingers or is cured, he knows he belongs to Christ and his suffering is in Christ. His suffering is a way of fellowshipping in the sufferings of Christ. And so he knows Christ's power can be manifested perfectly in the midst of his bodily weakness. That's what the anointing oil is all about. That's what it does. The anointing reminds you, your suffering is not just some random, purposeless tragedy. No, it is a vocation. It is a vocation. It is a calling from God, even, I dare say, a gift from God. And through your sickness... Now as when anointed with oil, you can minister to the rest of the body in a particular way as you persevere in faithfulness through your sickness. See, when you are seriously ill, you come face to face with the last enemy that is death. And the anointing can remind you that Christ passed through death for you and he will walk through this illness with you. And that becomes a witness, that becomes a testimony to the rest of the body. Here is what it looks like to suffer in Christ, in union with Christ Jesus, to fellowship in his sufferings. It becomes a picture of all of that. Another point here. James wants us to understand prayer is efficacious, that prayer is powerful. The prayer of faith has power to heal. You know, I think it's great, we get so many requests to pray for the sick, we spend a big chunk of time every Sunday in our pastoral prayer, praying for the sick by name. I think that's connected with this. Of course, what James 5 has in view is actually something much more private and personal, where the sick person has called the elders to come to him and pray with him and anoint him in private. When the elders gather with the sick person for prayer and anointing, what's happening? When prayer is offered up on behalf of the sick in this way, we need to understand prayer matters. Prayer is powerful. Prayer really can change things. Again, that doesn't mean God's always going to say yes to whatever we ask. Sometimes God has other plans, better plans. But prayer is powerful, and prayer really can change things. I'll put it this way. I'll be just this blunt about it. There are some Christians who could have been healed from an illness, but were not because they did not pray or they were not prayed over in this particular way. They missed out on a healing they could have had. We all miss out on all kinds of blessings that we could have had that we don't obtain because we don't pray for them. We understand prayer really does change things. Prayer is essential. We pray and God acts. And I am afraid all too often we expect way too little from prayer. Our prayers are vague, so vague we wouldn't know if they got answered or not. Uh, we, we, we pray only for things that can, that can happen without God acting or uh, intervening in some kind of really extraordinary way. Our prayers are earthbound. They're too naturalized, you could say, too ordinary in terms of what we're asking God to do. We can ask God to do really extraordinary things. We ought to ask God to do really extraordinary things. We ought to ask God to do things that clearly only God can do. Now we're going to come back and, and, and talk about this theme of prayer again when we come back to the rest of this section in James because there's more to be said about prayer, but I just want to leave you with that. A couple other things here as we wrap this up. Why are the elders involved? 
Obviously, all Christians should pray for one another. That's clearly true. But it says here, the elders. Why the elders? This tells you the early church, from its earliest days, had a form, a structure of government. The elders are the leaders and shepherds of the whole body. And here they are acting as representatives of the whole congregation. When elders pray, the whole church is praying through them. Think about this. When one member of the body gets sick, we are all sick, in a way. And so when the elders act on behalf, praying for the sick, really, we're all praying through the elders. They are lifting up that sick person, raising up that sick person, offering that sick person to God in prayer on behalf of us all. doesn't mean if you're not an elder, you don't pray. You still do. But the elders here are acting on behalf of the whole body because the whole body, in some way, is experiencing this illness. And presumably, the elders are righteous men. James says in the next verse, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. To have righteous church leaders, righteous men leading the church and shepherding you and praying for you is the best possible medical care there is. This kind of prayer doesn't replace medicine, but not, neither does medicine replace this kind of prayer. You need both. You need doctors and elders caring for you when you're sick. But here's the role of the elders. They are to pray over you, and we should expect powerful things to happen because of their prayers. When you're sick, obviously it's wise to call for a doctor, but it's also wise to call for your elders. You are a physical and a spiritual being, and you want holistic help for both your body and your soul. And that's why we must resist the trend in our day to completely secularize the practice of medicine and how we look at sickness and healing. And you need to know your elders are very willing to do this. In our constitution, our church's constitution, one of the duties of the elders is to pray over the sick and anoint them with oil. You need to know the session is always on call. The session is always open for business, ready to give counsel, ready to offer prayers, ready to anoint with oil, to do all those things. It's part of their job description. Well, let's close this out. As a pastor... Uh, I have been involved in numerous situations here and in other churches where this passage in James 5 that commands us to anoint the sick with oil and pray over them in faith has been put into practice. I, I, I've been a part of doing this many, many times, and I've seen every possible result from it. I've been part of praying and anointing for a sick person who went on to die just a few days later. And I've been a part of praying and anointing people where healings took place that stumped doctors and left them speechless and would have to be considered nothing short of miraculous. You need to understand, it's all in God's hands. But saying it's all in God's hands does not make us fatalists. As Christians, we are concerned with the body, not just the soul. And so we don't just fight for a spiritual salvation. We fight for life and health as well. The church has always been a healing society. Did you know that the hospital is a Christian invention? There were not hospitals as we know them in the ancient world. It took Christians to invent the hospital. The first hospital on record was built by St. Basil, a bishop in Caesarea in the year 369 AD. And hospital visitation by pastors and elders, has been a practice ever since. Visiting the sick, really even before that, but especially in the context of a hospital. The church's compassion to the sick and needy was revolutionary in the ancient world. Nobody cared for the sick 
the way we think today of caring for the sick and tending to their needs. Likewise, deacons in the church have always been at the forefront of caring for the bodily needs of people. Ever since Acts 6, deacons have been right there caring for the bodily needs of people. The the, the rise of modern medicine and modern nursing, those movements were led by Christians who are motivated by love of God and love of neighbor. Look it up in the history books. These movements were led by Christians. They happened because Christians wanted to love their neighbors and seek physical healing for them, not just spiritual healing. Because really all of this flows out of the ministry of Christ himself, who is the great physician and who ministered to people comprehensively in word and deed, healing bodies and souls, forgiving sins and curing physical ailments. We see Jesus doing that in the Gospels, but you know what? Jesus is still doing that today, ministering to us comprehensively and holistically. And so in the end, in the final analysis, salvation from sin and healing from illness are both part of one comprehensive deliverance from the curse that Christ has won for us. Today, as things stand right now, we can distinguish bodily healing from spiritual salvation. At the last day, we will not. Bodily healing and spiritual salvation will be one. That's what the resurrection of the body really is all about. And what that means is you don't need to live in fear of sickness. Yes, we can and should fight that sickness using all the tools God has given to us. Tools of modern medicine, tools of prayer, tools of anointing with oil. We should use all of those things. But even when death finally comes for each of us as it will, we have nothing to fear. As Paul was awaiting execution in a Roman jail cell, he could say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And this is because death is a defeated foe. We will be healed. We will be saved. We will be raised up at the last day. God's ultimate will for you, I can say with all confidence, God's ultimate will for you is your healing, your transformation. Your glorification, that is God's will for you, and he will make it happen at the last day. And that means no matter how great any of us suffer, no matter how terrible the illness, no matter how great the crisis of health, you have a sure and certain hope. You will be healed. You will be raised up. Even in the midst of your last breath on this earth, you have a sure and certain hope of salvation and victory over death. You will be healed. You will be saved. You will be raised up. You will be glorified. That's our hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.